Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, May 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Russia accuses Ukraine of attempting to kill Putin. A ceasefire is inked in Israel and Palestine. Lawmakers hold a hearing on U.S. Supreme Court ethics. Iran's president begins a historic visit to Syria. An active shooter in Atlanta kills one. While a school shooter in Belgrade kills nine. A rights group says global risks to journalists are increasing. Three McDonald's franchises are fined for child labor violations. An Alzheimer's drug shows promise. And the U.S. Surgeon General declares an epidemic of loneliness. In our top story, Russia accuses Ukraine of attempting to kill Putin in a Kremlin drone attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Guardian, CNN, President of Russia, Reuters, and New York Post. Russia on Wednesday accused Ukraine of launching an overnight drone attack on the Kremlin residence, claiming that it was a planned terrorist attack aimed at assassinating Russian President Vladimir Putin. Two unmanned aerial vehicles allegedly targeted the Kremlin prompting Russian military and special forces to take timely action to disable the devices. Debris reportedly fell on the Kremlin grounds but caused no casualties or material damage. A video apparently showing smoke rising from the Kremlin emerged on a local telegram channel around 12 hours before official reports on the incident. While it has been verified that two drones were flown above the Kremlin, no evidence of Ukrainian involvement has been provided. Russia's presidential press service stated that Putin was unhurt and that his work schedule remains unaffected. Nonetheless, it added that the country reserves the right to take countermeasures wherever and whenever it deems appropriate. Ukrainian officials have denied any involvement in the attacks, with Zelensky's advisor Mikhailo Podolyak arguing the claim that Kyiv was behind the incident, along with the reported arrest of alleged Ukrainian saboteurs in Crimea indicates that Moscow is preparing for a large-scale attack in the coming days. Last week, a report in the German publication Bild accused the Ukrainian Secret Service of attempting to assassinate Putin in an earlier drone attack that reportedly crashed 12 miles away from where Putin was due to appear. Eric, thank you for the facts on that first story. Our first round of narrative spin is going to start off with a pro-Ukraine narrative provided by Pravda. Ukraine has nothing to do with this attack, as Kyiv is focused on deploying its forces and capabilities to liberate its own territories, rather than attack the territories of another country. This incident is obviously a false flag operation to further escalate the conflict ahead of May 9th, the Russian holiday to celebrate the 1945 victory over Nazism. A pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. This was a pre-planned act of terrorism carried out by Ukrainian forces to assassinate Russia's Putin just before the national holiday of May 9th, when several foreign guests will attend the parade to mark the Victory Day. Given the nature of this attack, Russia holds the right to respond whenever and however it sees fit. And from time to time, we get a statistics-based nerd narrative from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community, this one says there's a 30% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. 
Now back to the news. Our second story concerns news out of Gaza, where the IDF and Palestinian groups have agreed to a ceasefire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Guardian, The Times of Israel, CNN, and Associated Press. On Wednesday, the Israel Defense Forces, or the IDF, and Palestinian Armed Forces in Gaza reportedly agreed to a ceasefire after a night of violence was prompted by the death of a Palestinian hunger striker in Israeli custody. According to a report from Reuters, quoting Palestinian officials, the reciprocal and simultaneous ceasefire was established via diplomatic efforts by officials from Egypt, Qatar, and the UN. Qadir Adnan, a prominent political figure affiliated with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or the PIJ, died in his cell on Tuesday. Adnan was arrested in February and shortly after began an 87-day hunger strike in protest of his detention without trial. The death of the 45-year-old, who many Palestinians consider a symbol of resistance against Israel, while in Israeli detention, has sparked outrage in Gaza, with armed groups, including Hamas and the PIJ, firing at least 37 rockets toward Israel. In retaliation, the IDF hit targets across Gaza, including a military post, weapon storage, weapon manufacturing site, and a training facility belonging to Hamas. The attacks killed one Palestinian and wounded five others, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. According to an Israeli human rights group, Hamokt, Israel reportedly holds over 1,000 Palestinian detainees without charge or trial under its administrative detention policy. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Middle East Monitor. Israel's brutal occupation, which strips Palestinians of their rights, is primarily responsible for violence in the Holy Land. The international community can no longer turn a blind eye to Israel's treatment of Palestinian prisoners like Adnan, and it must immediately protect Palestinians in Israel's prisons or their deaths may become the ultimate symbol of nonviolent resistance. And that's followed up with the pro-Israel narrative provided by the Times of Israel. Israel has continually made clear its desire to live in peace and explained that the blame for violence sits squarely with Palestinian terror groups. The country will not stand by and allow terrorists to freely target Israeli civilians. The international community must not ignore the reality that Adnan belonged to the terrorist PIJ and that, while tragic, his death was self-inflicted. Israel cannot be blackmailed by terrorists who attempt to use hunger strikes as leverage to force their release. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 55% chance that Iran will recognize Israel before the year 2070. In our next story, lawmakers hold a hearing on Supreme Court ethics concerns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, MSNBC, NPR Online News, and Washington Post. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee Tuesday clashed over the possibility of imposing ethical standards on the Supreme Court following recent reports surrounding the actions of Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. While Thomas has been accused of failing to disclose his financial relationship with billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow, Gorsuch allegedly didn't disclose selling land to Brian Duffy, a lawyer whose firm has been involved in at least 22 Supreme Court cases since the deal. 
Chief Justice John Roberts declined an invitation to testify at the hearing, instead releasing a short letter and a joint statement signed by all nine justices reaffirming their voluntary adherence to the compulsory code of conduct for lower federal justices. The witnesses at the hearing included judicial ethics expert Amanda Frost and former federal judge Jeremy Fogel, who both supported the establishment of a Supreme Court code of conduct, claiming that Congress has a constitutional right to regulate the court's ethics. On the other side, former U.S. Attorney General Michael Mukasey and lawyer Thomas Dupree shared concerns that imposing such a code would breach the separation of powers between the branches of the U.S. government. Meanwhile, last week, legislation that requires the Supreme Court to establish a code of conduct within one year was introduced. However, the bill will likely struggle in a divided Congress. Eric, thank you for that. We've got the L.A. Times providing us with a democratic narrative. The fact that the Supreme Court justices aren't bound by a code of conduct is troubling, and reforming the courts to change this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. However, even if legislation is adopted, it won't fully rectify the court's continued issues with credibility. Ethical lapses are only secondary to the reality that the Supreme Court's public opinion rating has been tarnished by a blatantly partisan institution manipulated by Republicans in recent years. Washington Examiner gives us a Republican narrative. Since the swing towards a conservative and originalist majority in recent years, the Supreme Court has faced a cynical and sustained campaign by the left to undermine its every move. Certain questions of the judiciary should rightly be asked. But this coordinated attack, which ignores examples of the exact same behavior by progressive justices, is wrong. The current democratic crusade is simply the angry reaction of activists who no longer have a majority of pliable justices whose wills can be bent as see fit. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 15% chance that there will be any change to the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court this year in 2023. Okay, Eric, I got a question to you. Mm-hmm. So obviously the Supreme Court has got, I'd say, a PR issue yeah. going on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Wh- how do you think How do you think they flip the script? How do you think they get the people's support? What do you think they should do? Uh, I think they should fire them all and rehire new justices. Just totally clear out the court? I think they should just clean house. Just clean house completely, just with a big broom and sweep them out, kind of like, uh, yeah. like the Dude, clown at, at Showtime at the Apollo, have the clown come in and kind of yes. brush them brush off the stage Absolutely. of the Supreme Court dancing. Yes. Da, 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 you know, like type thing. And everybody's just like, woo! Get out of here! Get out! Iran's president, Raisi, begins a landmark visit to Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, AA, France 24, Iran International, Independent, and Al Jazeera. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi arrived in Damascus on Wednesday in an effort to bolster bilateral ties in the first visit by an Iranian head of state to Syria since the outbreak of the Syrian civil war in 2011. Raisi traveled with a large political and economic ministerial delegation, is set to hold extensive political and economic talks with his counterpart Bashar al-Assad, and signed several bilateral agreements, Syrian state media reported. Raisi is the first Iranian president to travel to Syria since Mahmoud Ahmadinejad visited the Arab country in September 2010. Raisi and Assad signed a memorandum covering collaboration on oil, transportation, and agriculture, 
Raisi's visit comes amid recent rapprochement between Iran, a key military and economic ally of Syria, and its regional rival Saudi Arabia, following years of strained relations and as Arab countries seek to resume ties with Damascus. Since the outbreak of the Syrian civil war that led to Syria's exclusion from the Arab League in 2011, close to 500,000 people have been killed and half of Syria's pre-war population of 23 million have been displaced. Prior to Raisi's trip, Israel, for which Tehran's expanding regional footprint is a major concern, launched airstrikes on the international airport in the northern Syrian city of Aleppo on Tuesday, reportedly killing one soldier and knocking the airport out of service. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The establishment critical narrative is our first spin, and it comes from Tehran Times. Raisi's landmark trip to Syria is a major victory for Iranian diplomacy in advancing the regional rapprochement process. Moreover, the normalization of Iran-Syria relations deals another blow to Washington, and the Israeli regime and their attempts to bring Iran to its knees and plunge Syria into chaos through their proxy war. The joint reconstruction of Syria signals a new dawn and will have a positive impact on regional political-economic integration. And that's followed up with a pro-establishment narrative provided by iPost. Raisi's visit to Syria underscores Iran's autocratic plans to expand its regional influence at the expense of security and stability. While the Syrian regime seeks to normalize relations with the Arab world, Tehran is instrumentalizing Damascus to improve its ability to threaten Israel through its proxies such as Hezbollah. The increasing rapprochement of regional rulers is a cause for concern for the U.S. and Israel that needs to be closely monitored. The nerds of Metaculus are giving us their narrative saying there's a 49% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before the year 2030. I've been meaning to ask you, Adam, what's the status of your rapprochement? The status of my rapprochement? Yeah, how's that going? It's in flux. It's, it's, it's currently in flux. <laughs> it's in flux. It's in flux. It's in flux. <laughs> My rapprochement. <laughs> in our next story, an Atlanta mass shooting leaves one dead and the search for the suspect is underway. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, Guardian, Breitbart, and Fox News. At least one person is dead and four others were taken to a hospital Tuesday after a gunman, suspected to be 24-year-old Dion Patterson, shot multiple people at Northside Hospital Medical in Midtown Atlanta, Georgia. The suspect is still at large and police have released images of the suspect wearing a hoodie. Police responded to calls about an active shooter around 12.30 p.m. local time. The photos released by police show the suspect, who was wearing a mask, walking into an office doorway and raising his arm to point what appeared to be a handgun. Dozens of police and fire vehicles were gathered along West Peachtree Street as officers with assault-style rifles, helmets, and vests continued to arrive more than an hour after the shooting. Police also urged those in the area to shelter in place. Local television reported that multiple agencies, including Atlanta Police, Atlanta Fire, Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, Georgia Tech Police, and the Georgia State Patrol all responded to the scene. One of the injured victims was said to still be in the emergency department, though no other information on the others has been given. The previous ban on entering the hospital has also been lifted. 
According to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive, there have been 189 mass shootings in America so far this year, which the GVA defines as when a minimum of four victims shot, either injured or killed, not including any shooter. Eric, thank you for the facts on that frightening story. We've got a left narrative starting off provided by Cincinnati.com. This kind of recurrent gun violence is a uniquely American epidemic. How many innocent victims must die before gun laws are reformed? The U.S. has more guns than any other country, essentially one gun for every citizen, and one of the highest gun-related death rates. This madness needs to stop with better regulation, including limiting who has access and the types of weapons they own. The Washington Times brings us a right narrative. The anti-Second Amendment gun violence archive likes to flash large quantities of so-called mass shootings in the hopes of persuading people to think there's a Columbine shooting every day. What these activist organizations don't mention is that almost all of these stem from gang disputes, neighborhood arguments, robberies, or domestic incidents that got out of control. Lone shooters indiscriminately killing students or hospital visitors account for less than 4% of them. And we're going to wrap this story up with a cynical narrative by the L.A. Times. Another day in the United States, another mass shooting. And just like all the previous tragic attacks, nothing will change based on the empty rhetoric of both sides. Mass shootings have become a part of America's landscape, and neither the left nor the right has enough political willpower to change that. A teenager kills nine in a Belgrade school shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, Reuters, NPR Online News, and CNN. According to Serbia's Interior Ministry, a deadly school shooting in the capital city of Belgrade Wednesday killed at least eight students and a security guard, with another six pupils and a teacher taken to the hospital with injuries. Belgrade police arrested the 14-year-old suspect who allegedly used his father's weapons to carry out the attack on the Vladislav Ribnikar school. Head of Belgrade police, Vasilin Milik, said the shooter pre-planned the entire attack and was armed with two guns and two petrol bombs. The shooter killed a school guard as he entered the school and then three students in the hallway. Milik added that the assailant opened fire in a history classroom because it was closest to the entrance before calling the police himself after finishing his rampage. Police say the seventh grader confessed to committing the shooting, with Milik adding that he had names of children he wanted to kill and their classes. Further investigations into his motives are underway, and Serbia's education minister declared three days of mourning. Interior Minister Bratislav Gesalik said the shooter's father has also been arrested despite legally owning the firearms. The father will also be criminally charged over the shooting because his son is below the age of criminal responsibility. Serbia has 39 guns for every 100 citizens, the highest gun ownership rate in Europe and the fifth highest in the world. However, mass shootings are rare in the country. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a right narrative coming from New York Post. Despite having some of the world's highest gun ownership rates, mass shootings are exceedingly rare in Serbia. Today's tragedy at the Vladislav Ribnikar is the country's first mass shooting in a decade, despite years of warnings about the number of weapons left over from the 1990s wars. The school shooting in Belgrade is a tragedy of the highest order. It is thankfully an extraordinarily rare occurrence in the, in the Balkan nation. 
and any correlation to mass shooting trends should be taken with caution. And the right narrative is followed up with a left narrative provided by the star. While Serbia may have very high gun ownership rates, its gun laws are very strict when compared to countries like the U.S. To obtain a gun permit in Serbia, a person must go through a thorough background check and be medically examined every five years. Not only must Serbians be clear of any criminal history and mental disorders to obtain a firearm, but they also face a much more extensive process to get a concealed carry permit. These laws will hopefully continue to help prevent future tragedies like this one. Eric, I'm surprised there wasn't a uh, NRA spin that just said, see? (laughs) According to an NGO report, global risks to journalists are increasing. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, Metro U.S., New York Times, and Le Monde. On the eve of the 30th World Press Freedom Day, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned of a worldwide attack on media and journalists, calling for an end to the targeting of truth and stressing freedom of the press to be the foundation of democracy and justice. 363 journalists were imprisoned globally in 2022, a 30-year high according to the NGO Committee to Protect Journalists. Within his video message as part of a wider U.N. commemoration, Guterres urged the world to end the detainment and imprisonment of journalists for doing their jobs. He also said the collapse of the media industry has led to a decline in independent and diverse sources of information. He warned that increased consolidation of media into the hands of the few threatened freedom of expression by limiting opportunities for dialogue and debate. Also speaking at the UN event was the publisher of the New York Times, A.G. Salzberger who warned that when the free press erodes, democratic erosion almost always follows. Fatal attacks on reporters increased in 2022, with at least 67 journalists and media workers killed. Furthermore, Audrey Azoulay, director general of UNESCO, commented that digital media has also changed the entire information landscape. While providing new forms of expression and information, he stated such platforms also provided fertile ground to spread disinformation and hate speech. The commemoration by the UN was the beginning of over 60 events in 60 countries to highlight World Press Freedom Day, intending to raise awareness about the trend of declining media freedom and increasing attacks on journalists. Eric, thank you for the facts. Starting off, we have a pro-establishment narrative for this story, brought to us by New York Times. The global state of press freedom has worryingly deteriorated in recent years. Autocratic leaders have used censorship, media repression, and attacks on journalists to consolidate power, with control of information believed to be essential in holding control of all else. This is unfortunately particularly prominent in nations like Russia, with dozens of journalists being arrested for simply running stories about the war in Ukraine. The international community must continue to bolster support for journalists to protect democracies from autocratic trends. And Truth Dig gives us an establishment critical narrative. The double standards of the U.S. government are on full display in the lead up to the World Press Freedom Day. The Biden administration has proclaimed the centrality of press freedom globally and has expressed outrage over Russia's arrest of U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich for espionage. Meanwhile, despite such rhetoric, 
the U.S. continues to pursue the extradition of journalist and publisher Julian Assange. America's hypocrisy on the world stage is stunning. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to wrap up this story with a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that Julian Assange will be extradited to the U.S. by September of 2023. Three McDonald's franchises have been fined for child labor law violations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the entrepreneur, DOL, Fox News, NBC, Washington Post, and New York Post. Three separate McDonald's franchises have been fined $212,754 for child labor violations following a U.S. Labor Department investigation that found minors working illegally at 62 locations across Kentucky, Indiana, Maryland, and Ohio. Archways Richmond, LLC, a Walton, Kentucky-based operator of 27 McDonald's locations, will pay more than $143,000 in civil penalties for allowing 242 minors aged between 14 and 15 to work earlier or later in the day than the law permit and more than three hours on school days. Louisville, Kentucky-based Bauer Food LLC, which operates 10 locations, is facing a roughly $40,000 fine for hiring two dozen children under 16 to work more hours than allowed by law, including two 10-year-olds who weren't paid despite working as late as 2 a.m. Meanwhile, Bell Restaurant Group 1 LLC, also based in Louisville, is expected to be fined an estimated $29,267 in civil penalties for allowing 39 children aged 14 to 15 to work longer than authorized. The crackdown comes months after the Biden administration announced a new initiative targeting low-wage industries to tackle child labor as law violations have reportedly been fueled by a tight labor market and a high number of unaccompanied children arriving from Latin America. Meanwhile, multiple states have relaxed child labor laws as part of a GOP push. The fast food giant, which has some 14,000 restaurants across the U.S., profits largely from the rent and royalty income it receives from franchisees. Late last year, McDonald's franchise owners in Pennsylvania were also accused of child labor violations. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from National Review. The surge of child labor violations in the U.S. is a direct consequence of the number of unaccompanied minors entering the country amid the border crisis. Based on a misguided liberal notion of humanitarianism, the Biden administration has created a nefarious system rewarding the quick release of illegal child migrants only to let them be exploited by cash-driven businesses. And that's followed up with a Democratic narrative provided by New York Magazine. While the U.S. faces a notable labor shortage in low-skilled positions, Central American adults are willing to migrate north to find work as they face economic misery at home. Despite evidence that policymakers should expand immigration opportunities, they have chosen not to take this opportunity, a decision that has forced unaccompanied minors to enter the U.S. and work to send money to their families. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that the first fully automated McDonald's will open in the U.S. by March 2030. News coming from Eli Lilly as an Alzheimer's drug significantly slows cognitive decline. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, UPI, CNBC, Reuters, Fox News, and CNN. Eli Lilly, the drug developer behind the experimental Alzheimer's drug, Donanumab, has announced that the drug slowed patients' cognitive decline by as much as 35% when compared to taking a placebo during clinical trials. In its Wednesday announcement, the company said the late-stage study of the drug also showed a 40% reduction in a decline of a patient's ability to perform daily life functions over the last 12 months of the study. During the trial, three participants died from brain swelling and bleeding, which are believed to be side effects of the drug. Patients and their families will have to weigh the risk of the treatment against potential side effects. Eli Lilly said the drug met the goals of the trial by slowing disease progression in 1,182 study participants who had been diagnosed with early-stage Alzheimer's. Participants were selected based on the amount of amyloid and tau protein present in brain scans. After these results, the company plans to submit for approval through the Food and Drug Administration this quarter, seeking the fastest path to market. In the U.S., more than 6 million Americans are impacted by Alzheimer's. Between 1.7 million and 2 million additional Americans are over 65 years old and facing the early stages of the disease. Eli Lilly is just one drug manufacturer seeking medical solutions. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a narrative A provided by Barron's. The main thing to know about this trial is that three people died while participating. There are still great risks associated with denanomab, and even if it receives FDA approval, the doctors are going to be reticent about prescribing it. Also, Medicare might not cover it. There might be better alternatives from other drug companies, and there's still a long way to go until it's time to celebrate victory against this horrific disease. Narrative B comes from Stat News. Drug makers are on the right path toward a cure for Alzheimer's, and this trial is a major milestone in pursuit of a strategy to attack the disease. Some patients will benefit from it if they're willing to take the risk, while others will benefit down the road when the drug makers build off their findings in the Donanumab trial. It seems that there is good reason for hope. And in our final story today, the U.S. Surgeon General declares loneliness to be an epidemic. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, ABC News, Vox, CBS, BBC News, and PubMed. On Tuesday, the U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy released an advisory warning that the country is facing an epidemic of loneliness, claiming it's as lethal to physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In the advisory, Murthy said a lack of social connection could be treated as gravely as tobacco use, obesity, and the addiction crisis, as loneliness can reportedly increase the risk of premature death by 26%. According to a study cited in the advisory, loneliness is linked to an increased risk of heart disease, stroke, anxiety, depression, and dementia, and is also one of the primary motivations for self-harm. The advisory calls for a national movement to address loneliness and recommends infrastructure and policy changes, as well as for people to join community groups and put down their phones when they're catching up with friends. While the declaration of the latest public health epidemic is intended to increase awareness around loneliness, new promises of federal funding have yet to be made to combat the issue. According to a study from the National Library of Medicine, 
the amount of time Americans engage with friends in person decreased by around 33% from 2003, which was equal to 60 minutes a day, to 2020, which is now equal to 20 minutes a day, while time spent alone increased to 24 hours a month during the same period. Our first spin for this story is Narrative A coming from The Guardian. While the risks of loneliness are real, loneliness isn't a health epidemic or quite the crisis it's cracked up to be. A culture of individualism and reliance on technology can make people feel lonely. However, there is insufficient evidence to show a steady trend in loneliness in the U.S. The loneliness epidemic narrative fits into the widespread cultural frame that modern life is about disintegration and alienation, conveniently hiding the fact that loneliness naturally changes across our life cycle. Yeah, you may feel lonely, but take our word for it, you're not lonely. <laughs> right. And we're going to wrap up today's podcast with a narrative B on this story provided by CNN. We live in the most digitally connected age in the history of civilization, yet approximately half of the U.S. adults experience loneliness daily due to diminishing social connections. Whether this is an epidemic or not, being socially disconnected is clearly bad for our physical, emotional, and financial health. Reversing course will take a strong effort from both the government and the public, particularly parents and caregivers who should schedule in-person time with family far more often than they currently do. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, May 4th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Hey, Eric. Yeah. May the fourth be with you. Oh, yes. May the fourth be with you, too. Uh